Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It's February 25th. Derek Ben Riper here with Michael Beller. Today, we are joined by one of my best friends in this industry and one of my best friends in general, really, even though we live thousands of miles apart. It's Vlad Sedler. You know him on Twitter as RotoGut. You've seen his work at Fantasy Guru. And you've probably seen him in your NFBC leagues, probably winning those leagues, or at least cashing, but more likely winning those leagues over the last decade or so. Vlad, thanks for joining us. How's it going for you on this Thursday? I'm uh, doing fantastic. Uh, always, always good to talk to you. One of my one of my favorite uh, uh, times of the year is usually the time uh, you and I get together preseason. Uh, you know, for me to be able to jump on and, and talk some baseball with you. So very happy to to uh, virtually talk to you and uh, and Mike. And your level of success in the high stakes arena is something I'm still aspiring to. So any chance I get to pick your brain about how you do what you do and why you do what you do, that's a, a win for me personally and hopefully a big win for our listeners as well. Um, KDS, of course, is all the rage right now for people who aren't familiar with it. It's Kentucky Derby style draft preferences. You're setting up where you want to be in the draft order and then a system randomly assigns you the highest priority spot that's available uh, that way, it's not just a complete crapshoot as to where you end up. And TGFBI starts on Monday. Of course, NFBC leagues use KDS. That's where I think most of us encountered that process for the first time. You ran a Twitter poll asking people their preferred range of where they wanted to be for 2021 drafts. I think you probably ran that with some expectation of what the results might look like. Were you surprised? You broke it up like this. You had one to three, four to seven, eight to 11 and 12 to 15 as preferred draft positions and four to seven was the runaway winner this year. And I feel like that's pretty unique to the 2021 board. So were you surprised at all by that result? I was a little bit, I, I was expecting one to three to go a little, a uh, little heavier. And I think maybe if in the same scenario, if you ran this poll 10 years ago, uh, when I guess you could say the, the, the bulk of, of players weren't maybe as advanced or didn't have as much information at their fingertips and KDS analysis wasn't as, uh, uh, as deep, uh, in that time, I would think that wouldn't be a surprising answer. You'd expect something more like a little bit early on, like people are used to and love drafting early. Uh, but it makes sense for this particular season and for this particular uh, draft scenario. And and one of the reasons for that is uh, people are pushing pitchers up. So specifically in the NFBC, anything with it in an overall uh, component contest, uh, the that ace, that Jacob deGrom, that Garrett Cole will typically be available for you if you want to start your draft that way. Uh, additionally, you've got Trey Turner, who's a fantastic boon to pretty much all five uh, categories and has been a top 25 player over the last three years, I believe one of the only uh, to do so. And then you've got uh, Mike Trout, who obviously is, is much beloved and people are usually always happy to take him. So you're getting one of those guys in that four through seven range and a likelihood that one of the big three to Tisa Cunha or Soto would fall to you, which of course people in that range would take as a gift. Yeah, it really is a, a deeper pool of hitters that could realistically end the year as the number one guy that is, I think, pushing people to like that 4-7 to seven range. And I think that I find myself wanting that 4-7 to seven range, too, because if I'm at the front of it, I'm, you know, I know I'm going to get one of, those, uh, one of those guys who falls to me. If I, you know, if I include Juan Soto as part of that group, then certainly I'm going to look at him as one of the guys who, uh, who could be sitting there for me at 4. And if I'm at the back half of that, like you said, you're looking at Jacob DeGrom, Trey Turner, uh, guys like that. So it's definitely an attractive range and a more attractive 
attractive range than it's been in recent years. Uh, do you find yourself lining up with that as well, or are you still leaning toward, just give me my guy, I want Ronald Acuna, I want the number one pick? Well, so, so far uh, over the last two months, I've done a handful of those uh, 50 round draft champions, and that's a 15 team format. And uh, I've really bounced around. Um, usually in the in the months leading up to, to, to the big March drafts, I will play around in different ranges to get a feel of where I like to draft from. Uh, some of my higher stakes leagues, at least the last couple of seasons, I felt very comfortable drafting at the back end of a 15 team or so anywhere like 13 through 15, just because I always feel like there are a couple of studs that, that, that will fall in that range. You'll always be able to grab a good starting pitcher and ace in the first or second tier if you want one. And usually there's somebody absolutely solid in that range. So I've had success drafting from the back end. Uh, you do put yourself in a position to potentially lose out on position runs, uh, you know, scarcity runs, things like that. Uh, but you know, for me, uh, I would be okay with the back end, but I want to also make sure that I get some stolen bases. And for example, looking back just a month and a half ago, Christian Yelich was always available there around that 15, uh, you know, that, that one, two turn at the back end of, uh, around pick 15. He's now moving up most drafts. Now these days, um, you're seeing him going nine, 10. So by the time you get to that point of the back end, you're not even get, getting somebody like Yelich. So I, I don't know how I feel per- particularly about the, the back end this year, but I think one of the most important things is that people can sort of set themselves up, um, to be comfortable drafting from any range and kind of have a plan for what targets they want at each range. And of course, it goes beyond just that first round. It's not. It's it's really not about just who you want in that first round, but how do you map out a type of roster build through your first four or five rounds? Yeah, that was something that our buddy Scott Jensted was emphasizing. I put the KDS question up on Twitter on Wednesday. Basically, I said, you know, what matters to you as you're deciding? And he was looking at starting pitching and steals and how those tend to play through the first four rounds. At a certain point, that's about as far as you can really script it. You obviously have to have players you're targeting who do different things at other points on the board, but how your foundation comes together sort of dictates the first set of decisions and decision tree, right? If you think about it like that, or a flow chart, right? You're going to get this group of players, so you're going to go down this path in the middle rounds. You get this group of players, you're going to go down that path in the middle rounds. Uh, steals are definitely a priority for everybody, and I think Starting pitching in the NFBC is always a priority. It seems like it's even more aggressive than ever. Like this year, I don't maybe maybe I'm reaching a little bit there. You've got a lot more experience over the years playing in this particular format than I do. But it's not even so much that the pitchers are getting pushed up. It's that I think we're pushing some pitchers up who have increased risk. And I think when you're taking pitchers in rounds three, four, and five. Increased risk is not what you're looking for, and I think part of the reason that's happening is just the natural variance that comes with a shortened season, right? So Kenta Maeda is a guy that I've liked for years, and I see him carrying a pretty consistent like fourth-round sort of ADP, and it just doesn't make sense to me. It seems like we're overreacting to the shortened season. Do you feel the same way? Do you feel like it's a little bit of a, a minefield with early pitching, even if it is something you still really want to prioritize in high stakes leagues? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult spot uh, to be in. And, and when we're looking at some of the, the draft boards and in, in the draft champions where you're seeing some of 
who I consider, and I think most people consider the best uh, high-stakes players in the world, guys like Casey Chaw, Lindy Hinkleman, you're seeing completely different approaches from them. You know, I've seen Casey um, happily drafted a Grom or a Cole in the first round, and usually you don't see Lindy doing that. Usually he starts off with a hitter. So the, the, the beauty of it is the you know, 30-round draft, even mistakes we can make along the way, there are different paths uh, to get to that. Uh, but like you mentioned, our buddy Scott Jenstead, like he makes a good point, uh, and he did so on that thread where, you know, you've got some people that are talking about like, well, you know, I'll just kind of pound the hitting early and then and then really just nail the pitching later on. But that's the kind of the the, uh, the key word there is, is nailing the pitching later on. Like it's much harder to do than, than, than one would think. And even looking back to the season in, what was it, 2018, right? When Blake Snell won the Cy Young, he was a, a an 18th round pick coming off a poor season, and uh, in 15 15 teamers, you can get Snell in the 18th round, but Snell in and of itself wouldn't have led you to an overall title or or even a league win necessarily. It's about adding him in addition to a foundation that you would have at the top of making sure that you have a top guy. So. We don't necessarily know how it could play out. It could be an absolutely wild season where DeGrom, Cole, and Bieber all get hurt. Uh, and, you know, the maybe the, the tier of guys going, you know, 7th, 8th, ninth round, all those uh, Lazardos, Uriases, Musgroves, Mortons of the world, like step up to, to, to the next level and, and sort of take over. Um, that could happen. But I think, you know, at least having that base and, and having strong pitching is very important no matter how you get it. Yeah, there's always the, uh, the the trick there too, and is that like you're not the only person who's necessarily going to be trying to nail mid round pitching, right? And and there's there's a way that we can make our sort of delude ourselves into believing that all those guys who you would check as nailing mid round pitching are going to be available to you when your turns roll around in each round, and that just simply is not the case and you know maybe it feels as though the supply of those guys is a little bit greater than it actually is going to be when you are sitting down and literally drafting a team we do know that pitching is going to come at a very high price this year if you uh if you self-select uh, just nfbc drafts from february 1st through today through the day that we are recording february 25th you have what, 11 starting pitchers going within the first 30 picks with Jack Flaherty being that 11th guy. And then you take a slight step down and you find Clayton Kershaw and Brandon Woodruff. So 13 guys uh, coming off the board in the first 35 picks, two rounds and change. Is there anyone in this group or maybe even the next group, the first maybe three, four, five rounds that you find yourself veering away from at ADP? Oh, I mean, not not particularly. I mean, they all have their strengths. And at the end of the day, you would assume that should these guys get a full complement of starts and what that might be this year, it's maybe it's 27, 28 starts mm-hmm. as opposed to 32, 33. If, you, if you're kind of leaning towards guys with, with little injury risk or concern, you're just you're just putting yourself in in a better position in general. Uh, and then also to uh, be able to take some risks later on in your draft. And, and I think just the other day, I was looking at some of the teams that were, uh, that have been near the top of, of national contests. And, and there are teams that have absorbed a little bit of like, like, for example, last year, there were some winning teams that had Max Scherzer and, and he, you know, obviously didn't have his standard 2.6 ERA it was, you know, he, he was three, five, he, he got blown up a little bit, but still the way some teams built last year, having Scherzer and getting those innings still ended up um, working out really well. Uh, 
I like the tier in general. I, I feel like early on in in the draft season, I was I was veering away from from Bieber, uh, but I think that's natural. I don't think anyone expects him to 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 replicate last year's magic, especially him facing all those uh, th- those weak teams within his own division. Now that things will open up a little bit, and he'll get some of that AL East in those tough ballparks. Like things will, and he does get hit hard when he does get hit. Um, so those things will open up a little bit, but there's still no reason to think that he won't be a, a first round guy. Um, I happen to personally really like Darvish and, um, and and trying to figure out how I feel about Bauer because to get Bauer, you're looking, I mean, you've got some drafts in, in NFBC, he's going the eight to 10 range. Like how confident are you that you're going to get some of last year and, and some of the three years prior? I think that's one of the toss-ups we'd want to throw at you. Like Bauer versus that next group, whether it's Darvish in your case, Giolito for some people, Walker Bueller. I keep finding reasons not to take Bauer. And if you're drafting late yes. in round one, you can take a hitter and then let the person on the end, if there's someone next to you, maybe take Bauer. They can sort of make that decision for you. But here's my thing with Bauer, and let me know if I'm just completely out of my mind. Bauer is as into tech as any pitcher we know about, right? He, he talks about it all the time. He's been doing stuff for years. He's had the long toss routine ever since he came into the league. Like He's done things his own way this entire time, trying to really push the limits and be at the forefront of everything. And he's had five seasons with an ERA over four while trying <laughs> to be like the Tony Stark of major league pitchers. So like if he was doing everything he possibly could to be amazing this entire time, and we have one great season that was a normal length season, and then of course the Cy Young in the shortened season. He's he's both of those people. Like he's a high variance guy. Now the volume is key, right? I think everything we're talking about with starting pitching has this this undertone of how much volume are you getting from your starters? I would say of all the pitchers in the entire player pool, Trevor Bauer has the least amount of injury risk in the entire group, right? I mean, the way he trains, the yep. way he's pitched so far, the injuries he's had, they're not shoulder, they're not elbow. I don't even think he's had an oblique injury, right? It's been like ankle and drone-related drone. issues that have slowed him down. <laughs> World so, Series drone issues. <laughs> like, I, I, so the difference last year, of course, was the pine tar, right? Spin rate goes up on the fastball, fastball becomes better, and he's always adding pitches and trying to mess with things. Does it just give you some pause that he's been such a, a wide range of outcome sort of player over his career while trying to like push the limits? Like that's that's the issue for me. Is just like why isn't he good all the time if he's doing all this stuff constantly to be the best pitcher he can possibly be? Yeah, so that's why he's probably the most. I mean, he is the most polarizing mm-hmm. guy uh, in those first couple rounds because I think the the the, the ranges of outcomes are pretty wide. Even though if you if you really look at it, like I mean, he's going to go pitch with 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 Kershaw and Bueller and those guys and and that team and sign that big contract and he's just so good and and, and motivated and wants to deliver like everything and, and he's always healthy and all that points to hey it's worth it here but we've also seen the downside um, and then of course you've got people that bring emotion into it people that may not like his persona may affect it may affect their opinion um, from a fantasy perspective and I think that's a big mistake that people make the same thing that same type of mistakes people make where you know it's like oh uh, you know this guy's burned me I'm never drafting him again that that's not really an attitude to have of uh, somebody that's successful in, in fantasy so um, yeah I mean of that group of those first 10 probably has the widest range of outcomes but um maybe it's just a matter of like when where you're where you're at on a certain day at, at that point of time when you're drafting you might be like yeah it just kind of feels right or like no I, i'm totally off yeah, the, sort of the final nail in the coffin for me with trevor bauer i was 
already leaning against it. It had less to do with him and more to do with just the opportunity cost related to the hitters you're going to be passing up to take him. I wasn't super comfortable with. I am comfortable with it when it comes to DeGrom, Cole, Bieber. Bauer was sort of where I drew that line, but I could see the argument for it. What ultimately pushed me to the other side, and I feel like I'm going to be on that other side for the remainder of draft season, was a discussion I had with Pedro Mora, who covers the Dodgers for us here at The Athletic, uh, talking about this uh, on a recent episode of Fantasy Baseball in 15. We're going through our team-by-team previews, and he said that the Dodgers just aren't really going to let anyone, Bauer included, get beyond 26 start this season. And they have Dustin May, and they have Tony Gonsolin, they have plenty of guys who they can lean on, and Bauer would be the one who would maybe get beyond that. But I think in a perfect world, the Dodgers just really aren't going to do that. His his exact quote was that the Dodgers are never going to have a six-man rotation this season, but when you look at the numbers at the end of the year, it is going to appear, based on the numbers, that they did have a six-man rotation throughout the year. And that concerns me about him, and it also concerns me a little bit about Walker Bueller. I was looking at your um, NFBC uh, pitcher ADP pitcher tiers and you have Bueller actually in tier two away from Giolito and Darvish in that second tier I mean is it the innings concern is uh, what drives uh, Walker Bueller maybe closer to an Aaron Nola for you than a Giolito or a you Darvish I mean it, it's just so close and so marginal and if, if you were to just look at what my yeah, my ranking is for like the, you know, the my, my, my self-created VDP it, the difference in overall really isn't much different. You're still talking about like a, you know, early second rounder versus middle second rounder. Um, mm-hmm. With Walker Bueller, I mean, yeah, I mean, that is a good point. Like why are projection systems having Bauer on average for 190 innings, but Bueller for only 160? I mean, do we really anticipate that much of a difference? I think there's probably something off a little bit there. And then you're looking at Bauer's strikeout rates over the years as, as he tinkers. I mean, it's jumped from 33 to 27 up to 30 like you just kind of all over the place Bueller's been consistent he he's always a tick below the, those top aces he's not a 33% strikeout guy but he's not that far behind 28 29 and who's to say he can't unlock another another level especially with his skill set so it's possible so yeah I mean it went, by the time we get around to March I mean he could just feel like a kind of a, a safer investment there and, and I think you can make a good case for him being a safer investment than Bauer yeah, tier two, as you have it in your article, is really interesting because it's most of the guys that you see kind of run off the board throughout round two of an NFBC draft. And you'll see a couple other guys in that group maybe go early round three, mid round three. Uh, but Brandon Woodruff versus Clayton Kershaw to me is kind of a, a classic younger guy, relatively speaking, someone who hasn't been an ace over full seasons just yet, but has flashed everything we want to see from someone who could do that versus a goat in Clayton Kershaw who's done it many times before and we're just kind of playing that game of chicken of when is the goat not quite the goat anymore I think he keeps showing us just enough to pull everybody right back in so if you're sitting there late round two and Woodruff versus Kershaw are the two best players on your board which way do you go and why oh man that's uh that's really tough I feel like um push came to shove, I would feel more comfortable investing in Kershaw, but there's really nothing in, in Woodruff's uh, profile that, that that's not to like. Uh, you know, some people say, you know, are, are hesitant of those guys that are mostly two, two pitch pitchers, but I, I do feel like he's more than that. I do feel like the, um, uh, 
he he doesn't induce a lot of hard contact. He just kind of just maintains a good start. Like, you know, you guys know the team well and, and you've watched Woodruff pitch a lot of starts. Like he just looks dominant out there. He he looks like an ace every single time and and he's been consistent. He's healthy, good control, uh, strikeout upside. So I really like him. Um, this is actually a good one, a, a battle uh, between you two that I'm going to pose here. Uh, <laughs> how is Woodruff going to fare if things break right and uh, they don't skip anyone, they just go like on five man. I'm seeing Woodruff gets the Cubs three times in the first five weeks. Who's, who's going to win out that battle? Yeah, it's a Woodruff. weird schedule. The Brewers see the Cubs a ton. And the Cubs lineup's a little top-heavy. Uh, I think it's closer to a league average lineup than the elite stuff that we saw from them a few years ago when they won the World Series. I wouldn't throw bad pitchers against them in mm-hmm. a park like now it's called American Family Field, Miller Park in Milwaukee, because <laughs> mm-hmm. the ball flies there, right? I mean, things right. are a little different going into Wrigley where the wind's blowing in a lot. But Woodruff, I mean, I think the thing that really stands out to me when I watch him is he holds his velocity deep into starts. He's not one of those guys that opens the game, touching 97, 98, and then by the fifth inning, he's 93, 94. He holds that upper 90s velo deep into starts. He's one of their few guys they're going to trust to pitch into the sixth inning and beyond. And I think the arsenal is just deep enough. He backed off the slider a little bit last season, threw more change-ups, kind of working on a curveball too. So he's at least a three-pitch guy that's kind of tinkering with that fourth. The command's good really just ticks every single box. And I think part of what gives me some confidence that the workload will be there too is that he didn't have a shoulder injury or an elbow injury when he missed time in 2019. It was an oblique. So, you know, a less serious issue in terms of long-term health, even though it is the kind of thing that when you have it, it costs you significant time. So I feel like a homer where I have Woodruff <laughs> seventh among starting pitchers. This this tier is pretty tightly packed I think for most people mm-hmm. I just feel like such a homer when I go out there and, and take Woodruff at the 2-3 turn even though I know he's good and I would like him mm-hmm. even if he didn't pitch for the Brewers if it makes you feel any better DVR I would be the very opposite of a, of a Brewers homer right and uh, <laughs> I, I would take him right there too I mean he's right now plus 2500 on BetMGM to win the NL Cy Young and if I'm going to make an NL Cy Young bet it's going to be him and it's going to be that. Obviously, there's never any value in the uh, in the top guys. Jacob DeGrom should be what he is, but there's just no value in that. Uh, Woodruff has the profile of a guy who could really take off in, in this full 2021 season. I really like him. Since we invoked the Cubs lineup, I will say that I think there's actually a path to it being better this year than it was last year. They diversified the profile a little bit in getting Kyle Schwarber out and Jock Peterson in. Uh, I think you're not going to be able to attack the Cubs up in the zone as easily as teams were able to do with fastballs last season, and it's still a pretty good top of the order. Bryant, Rizzo, Javi Baez, one of the guys who talked so much about how not having in-game video affected him last season. He's going to get that back. You throw Peterson in there, Wilson Contreras, Ian Happ having something of a breakout last year. It's still going to be a pretty good lineup, but I won't be afraid to throw Brandon Woodruff against him because I won't be afraid to throw Brandon Woodruff against anyone. I think he is deserving of being considered a top 10 pitcher this year. So uh, I'll still take Woodruff, but I think we're going to see a slightly more diverse, slightly more dangerous Cubs lineup this year than what we saw from a very strikeout happy team last year. Um, Vlad, still looking in this tier, uh, another decision people are going to have to make for themselves is uh, looking at a couple of former teammates in Tyler Glasnow and Blake Snell, maybe coming more at the back end of this tier. Two guys who also uh, offenses tend to be strikeout happy against because of their stuff. Maybe you're thinking about these guys coming off the board late round three. If that's a pick you're faced with, do you tend to lean towards Snell or lean toward Glasnow? 
So I feel like I'm in a, the minority where I do have a slight preference for Tyler Glass now and, and could just be a bias. Um, in fact, it probably is, but I just feel like he's just one of those guys that uh, the the big breakout year, the one that's sustainable over the course of a whole season with full health is on the on the horizon. And, and I'm hoping that that is going to be this year. I mean, even looking back to his 11 starts last year, he did got he did get beat up a little bit uh, in the area over four after 12 starts of an ERA under two the previous year. Uh, but looking just at his, you know, his XFIP, his XERA, Sierra, I mean, it's typically it's under three. So um, yeah, he sometimes loses a little bit of control, but there's no uh, denying the uh, strikeout upside. If he's just able to kind of cut those walks down like he did in 2019, I think he could be really solid. Uh, the one differentiator with, um, with Snell and just with NL pitchers in general that I, I don't feel like a lot of people are talking about Losing that NLDH, um, at least possibly most likely for the season, is a big deal. Like for me, a lot of times if I'm looking at two guys, that uh, two pitchers that to me are, uh, appear very similar, especially later in the draft, like after round 15, I'm typically going to uh, to, to lean with the NL guy. I think the exception could be made maybe for, for AL West, just because to me it just seems like a kind of a not a great hitting division in general. And some of those ballparks are, are very pitcher friendly. Uh, but But yeah, I mean... I like both guys, happy with both guys, and you really just hope, stay healthy. If they do, you're getting a guy that could end up as a top five starting pitcher with ease. Yeah, just it's a good point about the AL West, by the way. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. division that the matchups aren't terrible. I think you're talking about probably like average difficulty when you factor in the park for even a good lineup like the Angels. Oakland's a pretty good place to pitch, obviously. It's always kind of cool there and tends to play more pitcher-friendly anyway. Houston's still pretty tough just because of the hitters there, but it's actually a pitcher-friendly ballpark. I mean, when Garrett Cole went there, it was a big deal. It was actually an upgrade for PNC. So um, I hadn't thought a lot about that, but that's definitely something to look a little closer at, I think, as I evaluate some of those pitchers. Uh, Some other interesting names in this range, you get a little later, and you get into the Sonny Grays and the Zach Plesaks and the Max Freeds. And this is kind of where people start getting that second starting pitcher if they don't have that guy already. As you try and look at these kind of mediocre, fringy aces, I guess we'll call them. They're good pitchers for sure. What do you think of this group as a whole? Is this a group of pitchers that you start to avoid or you're starting to do something else with your builds, trying to either get bats in that spot or maybe even start to think about like early closers or something else instead? I'm typically not uh, not hitting pitchers in this area. It's uh, it, it's a zone primed for at least a national uh, competitions to, to to maybe go for a a premier closer, which I think is is really not everyone needs to build that way, but I do think it's it's important to at least consider. There are always phenomenal hitters in this range, I think, that are available, and to me, ADP uh, average draft position just feels off a little bit on these guys. Like I, I'm looking at Sonny Gray and, and Plesak and, and Freed and they're, they're fantastic. I mean, you know, th- there's no reason why Freed, I mean, obviously expecting a little bit of regression, but there's no reason why he can't continue to dominate and be fantastic. But to me, there's really not much difference between these guys and, and the next batch of guys. Uh, you know, you've, you've got your um, low strikeout, but um, not low strikeout, but like, you know, reasonable strikeout upside, but just sort of safer guys like Kyle Hendricks and Zach Greinke, the sort of boring plays, uh, you know, Jose Barrios um, and the upside guys like Lance McCullers, Lazardo, Gosman, Sixto Sanchez, Framber Valdez, uh, Paddock. So uh, to me personally, I'd rather wait, skip the Grays and, and Freeds 
and build on some hitters, maybe a closer, and then work in that next range and maybe grab a couple of those guys and hope for the best. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really uh, an interesting tier of guys, an interesting group of guys, and it sort of goes back to what we were talking about maybe 10, 12 minutes ago, that it's almost as though they're being pushed up by a group of drafters who didn't get two early pitchers and are now starting to feel a little bit of pressure in buying into those guys. And I don't think it's something that is going to change really as we get deeper and deeper into draft season. Um, A couple of names you mentioned there jump out at me because they are guys who I feel like they've been drafted near one another for the last couple of seasons. And they are relative, they're pretty different pitchers. One guy's got much more strikeout upside, although he hasn't achieved. I think what a lot of us thought he was going to one guy has Basically, no strikeout upside in terms of being better than what we've seen from him over the last few years, but just as steady as they come in every single box that he does check year after year. It's Kyle Hendricks and Jose Barrios. Uh, How do you treat guys like that when you get around to them? Uh, I mean, typically, uh, they don't necessarily fit the profile of of guys that I I want to draft. Um, And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with them. with with Barrios, it's just like I don't know. I, I kind of feel like sometimes I, I'm a ratio snob, and, and and I want a guy that at least I think in a season can maybe sniff a three uh, three point you know two five, and he's consistently in the three eight range. And I know that might seem like you know might might be like nitpicking, mm-hmm. but if I kind of know he's he's closer to four on the ERA, whips all right, and then. I'm not really getting that massive strikeout upside. He's always right around a, a K per nine, like maybe takes up to another level. This is a great team and a great season for this for this to happen and, and, and take control of that rotation. But usually at that price, I mean, I, I just I don't I don't go gaga for it. Um, and then with Kyle Hendricks, I mean, man, he's he's solid. You know exactly what you're going to get out of him. Uh, he fits in, in specific builds where you know maybe you you want to you have an ace and then uh, who has a high strikeout upside. You grab a Hendricks as your two or your three, and then you can get a little bit uh, you know risky down the line and and maybe take some of those guys that don't have as as great a control. So um, I'm okay with either, but I don't just go out of my way for either one. I kind of feel like if you end up with Glass now as your first pitcher, Kyle Hendricks is more yeah. likely to end up on your team because you want that high volume of innings with good ratios. You know, one of the weaknesses with Glass now might be workload. Mm-hmm. Hendricks's relative strength is workload and ratios, so they balance each other out uh, really well. And again, mediocre aces, what I call those guys. They're not bad pitchers at all. They're just, uh, as Vlad said, I think there's not much that separates that cluster of the Grays and the Plesaks and even the guys like Barrios from guys that can go three or four rounds later in some cases. Uh, as you kind of look into that, we'll say like 100 to 150 range, it feels like there's a few interesting values that pop up. I think in your in your article, that was the group of tier four, actually tier five is where that group begins. You kind of have your, your choice of different skill sets there. I mean, you kind of have some old and boring guys that fall into this range. Uh, you have some resurgent guys like Kevin Gaussman who came back from the dead for fantasy purposes and pitched really well. Um, you have a guy that had a really disappointing shortened season in Patrick Corbin who might come out and throw 180 innings and rack up a ton of Ks. We just don't know what we're going to get for the ratios. Uh, how much of, of your Tier 5 decision-making hinges on what you did previously, right? Because this is probably SP3, SP4 territory in most builds. So what you take probably rides a lot on what you've already got as you try to make some of these decisions, doesn't it? It does, yes, and um, it's uh, it's. I think it's the key tier. Uh, the, the 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 true difference maker here is figuring out um, the guys that 
that are gonna gonna smash basically this year. I mean, you're just, you're just looking at the at the group of names there. I think you, a lot of the difference makers, guys that are going to get into the top 15, top 20 overall, um, there are a few from this group. It's 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 very legitimately possible. So uh, I, I love this range. Um, you know, it, it might change day to day. Like you know, maybe bump this guy up a little bit or that. Uh, um, drafting a lot, I think, really helps um, get a feel for for what you really like and what type of builds you get, but. Um, I think it's a pivotal range, and and I'd like to get a couple of guys here. Who are some of the guys in this range that are most jumping out at you, just for for purposes of throwing them out there? The high end of ADP that we're looking at includes guys like Zach Plesac and Jesus Luzardo and Ian Anderson, Zach Wheeler, Denelson Lamette. Uh, for you, you've got uh, quite a bit of difference in uh, in your VDP rankings versus ADP. So when you're looking at this and you're assuming – you know, basically a range of rounds where you're not feeling like I need to get a pitcher here. I can wait a round or two, or I like this guy here. I'll take him and I'll do something else in a round or two. Who are the guys that are jumping out at you that you want to make an argument for? I mean, it, I mean, technically Lance McCullers even belongs in this range. I mean, sure. that, that's where most people would have him is down here. I have him just to tick up, but the, the difference there isn't, isn't really much. Um, you know, he, he pitched 70 clean innings last year in the regular season and, and no issues with, with health and looking and hoping that that continues. Fantastic home park uh, and uh, decent defense behind him. So, so McCullers is someone I'm into. Uh, Jesus Lazardo, I mean, he kind of feels like a little bit of a post-hype guy. I understand that the price isn't necessarily conducive of that. I mean, of course, he's somebody you'd rather maybe get at 150. Um, obviously, this is a this is just a sign of how sharp drafters are, right? They're they're not going to allow for too much of a discount of somebody of Jesus Lazardo's talent. So. I don't know what type of offensive uh, support he's going to get this year necessarily, but uh, as far as a potential breakout season and, and becoming an ace, I think that's uh, he's certainly capable of that. And then I'll be really intrigued by the the San Diego guys. Uh, you know, Chris Paddock uh, now uh, being aware of analytics and adding a new pitch there, and then uh, just Joe Musgrove, who everybody wants to see you know become a thing, and for him to be a part of this team and staff and be motivated. And, um, you know, it, with every preseason appearance that he has and, and he's he's blowing guys away, you're just going to see that ADP tick and tick. So if you want some Musgrove, I recommend you you do some drafting right now. Yeah, that's going to have to be a, a draft now sort of scenario because there could be a lot of helium on Musgrove. He was a player that people were looking for reasons to like and going to San Diego only only adds some fuel to that fire. I, th- I like Paddock better than Musgrove straight up. Maybe I'm completely insane, but I think if that third pitch clicks for him, we can get something that looks much more like his 2019 than his 2020. So I'm definitely in on Paddock as one of the guys that I really like in this range. And I would say Zach Wheeler is another guy that I I like in your tier five. His ADP is closer to pick 100. I think VDP, you've got him a bit lower than that. Uh, Is it the ballpark that gives you the greatest concerns or is there something else with Wheeler that gives you some pause? No, it's 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 just he's to me he's just okay. Uh, he he's not anybody that uh, he feels overpriced essentially. Like if he's going in, you know, these days I'm seeing him going like 80, 90 overall. Uh, it, it doesn't. Uh, I don't see a true difference between him and and the guys in those tiers. So that's just sort of an automatic, um, I guess, uh, readjustment for him. But I mean, obviously, doesn't give up much hard contact. Um, strikeouts you would assume would bounce back a little bit. There's nothing to hate, but uh, him, Hendricks, those type of guys, you, I, I personally feel like you can only have so many of them. I'll just uh, make it unanimous really quick. I'm really into Chris Paddock this year also. I nice. buy it, and and uh, 
Eno wrote about how he's always been a very good command pitcher, always, right? In his season and a half, his season in the shortened 2020 season has had very good command. And I trust a guy like that, right? I trust a guy who has shown a high-level command skill to be able to pick up enough of a third pitch where it is, you know, not just a show pitch. It's something that he can command to both sides of the plate, make what do what he wants to do. I think he could be the cutter this year. He experimented with it last year, and hopefully that can become the third pitch for him. And we know the curveball still uh, something of a work in progress, but something that he has leaned on. So uh, we've got a, a Go Chris Paddock podcast here, uh, certainly. Um, I actually want to bring us up a little bit earlier in the draft because when I was, uh, when I was going through – uh, these uh, these tiers that you sent us, I noticed uh, a, a little bit of a drop in your rankings for Zach Gallen versus the ADP. It's not an extreme drop, but when we're talking about guys like this who are going to be selected pretty high, it's enough of a drop to the point where you are unlikely to have very much, if any, Zach Gallen. What's pushing you away from him this year? Oh, it's it's nothing pushing me away uh, particularly, and it really isn't that much of a drop. You're you're basically looking at uh, an ADP of 39, uh, my VDP of, of 46. Uh, he just feels to me like I, I don't see much difference with him and Carlos Carrasco, who goes almost 30 picks later. Uh, uh, Galen should have uh, Gallon uh, should have splendid ratios. Uh, he, he's he's a, a budding star. I, I like him very much. In fact, I have a couple of shares from January drafts where I took him. You know, around 32 overall ahead of his ADP. Um, but for me, I mean, wins is something that is that are literally impossible to, to predict. But there's a higher likelihood of, of of getting them, of course, if a team is better. Like for some reason, you just kind of know Max Freed, unless he gets uh, you know a bunch of bad luck, is going to luck into more wins than most. He'll he'll pitches five or six innings, and usually his team will be up because it's a great offense. Arizona's on the flip side of that. And, and just unfortunately, when you're creating projections and you have a guy with a, a couple less wins uh, than the field or the guys in those range that are pitching on really good teams, there's going to be a little bit of difference in, in the output and the actual auction value. And that's really all, all it is. Yeah, it really doesn't take much. If you're just a little bit down on Gallon relative to the field, there's always somebody in the room who loves Zach Gallon because there is a lot to like in his skill set. Uh, looking in that tier four range of that group is Steven Strasburg, Hinjin Ryu, Gray, Freed, Hendricks, some names we've talked about already, Grinky, Barrios, and McCullers. Uh, you refer to it as a dead zone or a bit of a dead zone in the article. I think there's really one one guy that I think is legitimately great in that group, and he's probably only in tier four because of injuries, and that's Steven Strasburg. And it looks like Steven Strasburg has been really going through a very normal offseason based on reports we've been getting in the last few days since spring training got underway. Where do you think Steven Strasburg's ADP ends up during the final weekend of live drafts in March? Because just like we were saying with Joe Musgrove, if you like Musgrove, you got to get him now. I think Steven Strasburg is a lot like that, too. It's sort of now or never if you want to get him at this price. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Um I agree. And, and and so long as there are no issues along the way in spring training and he just looks just full systems go, looks like the carpal tunnel issue is is way in the past, like he promised us, you're going to see him go in, in main events probably around that 3-4 uh, turn, around 45 to 50, and uh, possibly ahead of somebody like Kenta Maeda, possibly ahead of Corbin Burns, and maybe some ahead of Lance Lynn as well. So I think he's going to probably end up somewhere in that range. Yeah, a very fascinating guy to watch. One of the guys we are going to have, <clears throat> excuse me, a very uh, close eye on 
this uh, this summer as he uh, gets out there and or this uh, this spring, excuse me, as he gets out there and uh, starts making some starts and showing us maybe what uh, what he can do, how healthy he is, because we know that that's a guy who. If it's there, it is there in a big, big way. Uh, everyone's going to be circling around to pitchers as they get uh, late in drafts, uh, circling around to starters, trying to fill out those back-end uh, targets. Who are some of the guys that you look at when you do get into maybe pick 150, pick 200, and beyond? Uh, so hopefully some of those guys in, in that Tier 5 that we spoke of, I mean, maybe in some drafts you could l- get lucky and, and a couple of the go- those guys might fall to you, but that to me is even more of a dead zone. To me, the, those feel like the most overpriced pitchers of, of all, right? So if if you've got guys like, uh, you know, Herman Marquez for me is a great example. Like, you know, 170 overall. Um, and I don't even know if I feel comfortable taking him there because he's going to pitch half those starts in, in, in Colorado. And, and how are you going to take on an SP3 on your team who you have to question whether you're going to even insert them into your lineup on certain weeks? So like, okay, they're at home against the Dodgers week one. What are you going to do? You're going to sit your third overall guy? So that to me feels like a little bit of a market inefficiency. And whoever started doing those drafts and uh, right after the World Series, um, they kind of set the market on that. And and I'm not a believer in that. You know, they're, they're guys later on that I feel more comfortable with. Um, you know, I'd rather take a shot on on, on Jameson Tyon. He bounces back. I, I like Stroman in the Mets. Um, you know, a- Andrew Heaney, maybe he finally puts it all together and, and doesn't uh, give us an ERA uh, way above four with a, you know, whole bunch of home runs. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not too in love with his zone. I'll probably be uh, pounding the hitters here. Yeah, I got Haney in a draft Champions League, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago now. And I just, as soon as I did it, I'm like, what am I becoming? Why? When did I become an Andrew Heaney guy? Like, the, the projections always come out better than the results, and that always leads people to like him. And I get it. He's a former first-round pick. He's a lefty. He's, he, got a deep enough arsenal to get to the lineup maybe mm-hmm. a third time but there's a lot of health concerns there and i i don't know i i think he's just uh, an oatmeal guy as my my friend Eno mm-hmm. would say just a, a filler in the middle of your staff uh mentioned this up top you've had a, a ton of success in the nfbc as a whole 12 teamers even better than 15 teamers and obviously what you're doing with player analysis and roster construction overall is just working great across the board what are the biggest differences in your approach between the 12 teamers and the 15 teamers? Because for me, I have found that in the 12 teamers, I'm too patient with players in the bottom half of my roster. I wait too long for slow starters to bounce back. I wait too long for guys who aren't playing enough to get more playing time. And I feel like I don't churn enough. Is that one of the biggest differences for you? Or is there something else that you think really helps kind of give you uh, such a strong track record in those twelve teamers, especially. Yeah, I think that, it, that I think that's the the, the primary component. It's um, it, it's being able to move away from guys or, or part with guys that uh, that you drafted that you may have believed in, but then situations end up for them where you know they're not hitting in the lineup slot that they were expected to, or velocity is down, or, or whatever it is, and being able to balance that out with with players that are available in in on the free agent wire. And obviously you're dealing with a pool of 360 total players drafted or active at, or on teams at one time, as opposed to 450 in the 15 teamers. And so that just creates a lot more um, madness, I guess, in terms of a uh, uh, type of options available. You have to make much 
more difficult decisions. And, and you know, you notice that uh, a lot of the elite uh, players in, in the high stakes community, they don't even mess with the 12ers. They it just, it really kind of throws off their thinking uh, with the 15s. They just concentrate on one because at times it is difficult to, to kind of uh, switch out from, from one to the other. So, so the churning and burning is a big part of it. And then um, compartmentalizing and, and with the schedule, it's, uh, you know, like certain things, in the beginning of the season, I want to really look ahead and I want to get off to a hot start and maybe the back end, my last five to 10 picks, I'll, I'll add some upside players, but I'll also look at the schedule. Like, you know, there's a pitcher that happens to be getting the, the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, in the first two weeks. Okay. Not a guy I'm usually going to take, but let's, let's add him on the team. Let's, let's get a nice start there. I'll churn him and burn him and go from there. I mean, that's what happened with me with uh, Wainwright and uh, Chris Bassett last year, guys that I just added in the beginning that ended up being uh, uh, worthwhile for, for the whole year. And then also taking advantage of this, of um, looking ahead of the schedule and beating out people in fab uh, for um, a a couple weeks ahead, even if you have to, like you, you're not just looking like, all right, who's going to course, who's facing the Orioles, but like, what's their schedule like over the next couple of weeks? When can I slot these players in my lineup? Because if, you know, in the next two weeks, you've got a core series, but then you're going to really tough ballparks and you don't see yourself playing that hitter. Maybe that player isn't worth as much to you as it might be to somebody else. Yeah, and that can really guide your bidding, right? You might overbid if you think, well, I got the core series, I got to get that. You overbid for that, and you buy a player that you're not going to use for two or three lineup periods, and that's fab wasted ultimately relative to what you got. Uh, and just quantifying this, because I want to drive this point home, I didn't realize it was this level of dominance for you in the online championship leagues, those 12 teamers. Since 2015, you've entered 29 online championships. You've taken first in 12 of those leagues and taken second in five of those leagues. So 17 times in the money out of 29 entries in that 12-team format. And then for the main event... I mean, this is ridiculous. The main event one's ridiculous, too, though. The 15-teamers, you've entered nine times since 2015. You've won three, taken second twice, and taken third twice. So seven entries in the money out of nine in the main event, which for people who have just started playing that in the last couple of years, there's a learning curve for sure to those leagues. Those are hard leagues to do well in, and you're just crushing in both of them. So I have one last question to sort of tie this all together. How often on those successful teams in those 12 and 15 team leagues, how often were you invested in early closers? Because I think this is a particularly challenging year to figure out saves with so many teams having unsettled closer situations. It makes it as tempting as ever to invest in at least top 10 closers, if not the elite closers, which will run you a fourth or fifth round pick if you're trying to get to the top of the board to get you know, a hater or a Liam Hendricks or an Aroldis Chapman. So not much actually, because I went and I looked back at my teams over the last few years, and and I noticed uh, usually I I I was taking guys in the middle tier when the the closer uh, pool was was a little bit more it was a little bit more crystal clear at, at this point in the year, and uh, and there weren't as many committees or or question marks, and they were just solid guys that were after the top eight guys where I would just take two of those and, and call it a day, make sure I got a you know third guy, took a stab on somebody uh, at someone and um, paid attention to fab over the course of the year. Uh, the couple teams that um, where I took a Blake Trinan a couple years ago or Edwin Diaz uh, early after you know coming off a, a big season, I noticed those are the teams that that weren't winning. Um, and that's be- part of it is because 
you are ending up having to chase saves a lot all year. And I remember that was like, I think the year that uh, your your boy, uh, Jacob Barnes was a closer for like a day. And I think I spent <laughs> 250 on him and just, you just, just chasing the whole season. Um, and, and that's difficult. So it's going to be a tough uh, to beast to, to overcome this year. Uh, there's a case to be made for, for investing in them. There's a case to be made for waiting, but there's just so much volatility. And, and I think closers and figuring those out are going to be key to, uh, to, to construction this year. Yeah, it just feels like overpaying can cost you a lot, especially in a high-stakes league where everybody in the room tends to be really sharp. Vlad, this was great stuff. We really appreciate the time. It was great catching up with you, and we'll look forward to doing this uh, again at some point down the road. Thank you so much, uh, Derek, Michael. Uh, uh, talk to you guys soon. Give Vlad a follow on Twitter, at RotoGut. Check out his stuff at FantasyGuru.com and Seriously, give him a follow on Twitter if you haven't already. I don't know what you're doing. If you're playing fantasy baseball and you're not following Vlad, you've made a huge mistake. Uh, Twitter's full of, of bad follows. Vlad's a good follow, so give him a <laughs> follow. Uh, before we go, I just want to let everyone know we do have a listener survey. We'll put the link up in the show notes. It's for all the podcasts we do at The Athletic, so if you could take a moment to give us some feedback about the shows, things you like, things you don't like, we could make even better shows for you in the future. We really appreciate everybody who's done that. If you want to sign up for The Athletic, Three ninety nine a month will get you in the door of theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. That includes everything we do, including the draft kit, which just went up on Wednesday. For Michael Beller and Vlad Sedler, I'm Derek Van Riper. We are back with you on Tuesday.